Welcome to Leading Views. Today we're joined by Nigar Mortazavi, one of our European young leaders, a journalist and an expert on Iran. Um, Nigar, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So 2018, the U.S. pulls out of the Iran nuclear deal. 2019, Europe and Iran ties are under strain um, since the British authorities detained the oil tanker. Before we go into that, I, I kind of wanted to get started setting a sort of backdrop and talking a little bit more about the situation in Iran. It's been 40 years since the Iranian revolution and 75% of the population, if I understand correctly, was born after that. So we're talking about a really young population that my understanding is, um, is actually more open to the West, but is being disproportionately affected by the sanctions. So could you talk to me a little bit more about the situation in Iran that exists beyond what we're seeing on the news? Sure. So as you said, my generation, I was born after the revolution in 1981. We are the baby boomers of Iran. There was a boom in the population, and it's definitely a very young and vibrant population. It's actually one of the most pro-Western or even pro-American populations in the region, specifically because the government is very anti-American. But then at the same time, there is a lot of criticism for the type of policy that President Trump has taken towards Iran, the maximum pressure policy, the pulling out of the nuclear deal, the closing opportunities for diplomacy and for a peaceful resolution to the tension between the two countries. And of course, the economic sanctions are very broad. They target all of the major industries of the country and they affect first and foremost ordinary Iranians, specifically uh, young Iranians are also disproportionately affected uh, as far as employment, as far as cost of living, and also a hope for a future, a better future, which is very much lacking and declining among the young generation. And yet, um, I, I understand that um, at the moment, there are more, for example, women graduating from universities than men. Um, and there's a there's a, a sort of booming art scene in, in Iran and then in cinematography and in other arts. So it seems like it's primed for sort of social movements and all sorts of, you know, great things that we would associate with um, that type of a population and what they're interested in. Is that something that's kind of being put on hold by these sanctions? Or is that something that is kind of happening nevertheless? Well, it's not exactly being put on hold by the sanctions, just like censorship in the country hasn't been able to stop the uh, the movement and development that you talked about, Iranians have been very creative as far as going around all of these limitations that were posed, imposed by their own government. But sanctions have definitely affected it. So when I talk to, for example, artists in Iran, the price of the products that they use on a daily basis has been affected very much by sanctions. If artists want to travel outside the country, if they want to sell um, their art, if they want to hold exhibitions at galleries, which there's a lot of interest for actually Iranian art, all of that has been impeded by sanctions. And not just when it comes to trade and exchange with the U.S., but with other countries because of the pressure of the U.S. sanctions. It's on the art industry, on the cultural industry, and of course, on people's daily lives, as I said, prices of everyday goods. Um, the ones that are imported, of course, very much, but even uh, things that are made and produced inside the country, everything has been exponentially affected by the economic sanctions. The whole entire economy has affected employment. It has affected 
um, even the, the choice of, of various goods. And then there's one area that is very specific, which is the market for medicine and medical supplies, um, because um, specific life-saving medicine for special diseases are either Western-made or the components uh, have to be imported from the West. And it's not something that Iranians can go and buy from China or from India or any other country. And there's a very, very serious impact that sanctions have had on that industry, on specific drugs that are either very expensive or very hard to find in the Iranian market now. And putting aside recent tensions, what has the relationship been then between Iran and, and Europe, for example? sort of in parallel to the sanctions imposed by the U.S. and the more much more tense relationship with the U.S.? Well, the Europeans have had a very long history of trade and even diplomatic relations with Iran. It has had its up and downs. And when we say Europe, it also matters which part of Europe. Are we talking about the U.K.? Are we talking about France, Germany, Italy? For example, Italy and Germany have been very, very important trade partners with Iran over the years. But the UK has always been closer politically um, to the US in the overall Middle East foreign policy, of course, and also in Iran. So, But in general, I think the view of Iran in Europe is a lot more grounded in reality because the Europeans have a presence on the ground. They've always had a diplomatic presence. If one specific country uh, doesn't have uh, Thai diplomatic ties. The other one has, and there's this connection in Europe. So I've always talking to European diplomats, they have a much more real and clear understanding of what the Iranians think, what the Iranians want, what different factions in Iran, as far as the political factions, the population, all of that. When you compare that to the understanding from Washington, which is very surreal, very um, removed from the reality because there hasn't been that presence for 40 years. Almost no U.S. official has ever traveled to Iran. Very little of them have connections in Iran. Very few of them see Iranians. And the only bridge over the years has been just Iranian-Americans uh, who travel back and forth, which is its own uh, little population here. It, it's It's not bad. It's better than no relations, but still... Um, there's a huge difference between the Europeans and, and the U.S. And I think the, the mere presence of the Europeans at the table during the nuclear negotiations was the main reason or the conduit why it succeeded. Although the main negotiation was happening between Iran and the U.S., but it wouldn't have been possible without the uh, facilitation of the Europeans because of that specific role and space that they have been occupying over the decades. Okay, so then going back to that, you mentioned the nuclear deal. Um, the U.S. has pulled out. President Trump does not have the same approach as President Obama has had with Iran. What what does it mean, aside from sanctions being put back onto the country? Um, what does it actually mean in practice? And what how do Iranians feel about it? Well, it means... In a nutshell, it just means isolation. It means isolation that's not just economic or political, but it affects travel, it affects cultural exchanges, it affects even education, Iranians traveling outside of Iran, people traveling into Iran. So, for example, right now, there might be certain European companies or European uh, traders who want to do business with Iran. In fact, I was actually just talking to another young leader from our group 
from Spain yesterday. He was saying it's very unfortunate because there's so many opportunities of working or collaborating or even just traveling to Iran. But as a European, even if you have that stamp of entering Iran even once, that is going to impact your relations, your trade, your travel to the U.S. You're not going to be automatically um, able to enter the U.S. You're not going to be able to do that trade. So the extension of sanctions is much beyond what we see on the paper and as far as the legalities. And because the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world, it's the biggest economy, and these sanctions are very serious by the U.S. government. They're taking it very seriously as far as um, the implementation of it, it has resulted in Iran, and not just the government, but the entire country becoming more isolated um, from its trade partners, from its political partners, and also the population um, is becoming isolated from its neighbors and these other um, areas where Iranians had access to in the past. Okay. And what is the role that Europe can play then now that the U.S. has sort of stepped out of the deal, you get this notion that the European countries that were involved in it are sort of scrambling to salvage it. But then at the same time, you know, recently, um, just this year, they're having their own sort of increased tensions or their relationship is being put under strain with the what I had mentioned earlier with the British um, authorities stopping the, the oil tanker. What does that mean? Well, the Iranians basically, if, if we want to look at it from the Iranian perspective for a minute, what the Iranians were saying is that President Trump pulled out of the deal really for no reason and against the advice of his own closest aides. And when I say closest aide, his former Secretary of State Tillerson, his former Secretary of Defense, uh, Mattis, General McMaster, these are top people in Trump's circle who advised him to not pull out of the nuclear deal while Iran was abiding by its commitments. So President Trump pulled out of that. And the Iranians say that's fine. If the Europeans can make up for the economic loss because of U.S. sanctions, we are willing to stay in the deal. And they waited for a year and the Europeans kept saying that in very strong political messages that they want to stay in the deal. But from the Iranian viewpoint, just the political message wasn't enough. They wanted to see economic benefits, meaning they wanted to continue to do trade and even more trade with Europe. But in reality, the pressure of U.S. sanctions forced European companies to pull out of their trade and investment in deals with Iranians, and the European governments were not able or willing, as the Iranians are saying, um, they were not able to change that. So after a year, basically, that they waited, uh, the Iranians decided that this is not going to work for them. And now they have entered a new phase or the confrontation mode. They have decided that pre to basically respond to President Trump's pressure by confrontation. And that's how we see the lead up to the tensions in the Persian Gulf. Uh, this whole tanker crisis, which is an extension of that. And um, we see uh, Iran's, you know, adventures in the region. None of that has been stopped. In fact, it has been extended or enhanced in some areas. So it's basically, I see this as a crisis of President Trump's making and for no reason, because he could have kept the nuclear deal because it was working. Iran was abiding. And then he could have continued negotiations or diplomacy and build on that with the help of the Europeans. But it seemed like President Trump just wanted to take more without giving more. He wanted to build on the deal by taking more concessions from the Iranians without making any concessions from his side. 
and that didn't work. And now Iranians are trying to show a new face, basically. And um, I don't think this is this is going to be very helpful unless both sides start to de-escalate the situation quickly. It's basically realistic to say that it's more a question: Can Europe do anything about it? Is it is it really at the end of the day just a sort of face-off between Tehran and Washington, or or can Europe play a bigger role um, and sort of? I guess, step up beyond just saying we want to salvage the deal? No, I think Europe can definitely play a big role, just like they did, as I said, during the negotiations. They can be important mediators because Iranians see them as credible partners of the U.S. And um, they they are considered important allies to the U.S. Now, after President Trump came to the White House, that has changed a bit with European leaders. They don't seem all of them to be the closest allies to President Trump any longer. But um, they, the Europeans can definitely play a role, but it's not, they can, they can mediate, but as long as both sides are willing to make that concession, because the mediator can, you know, offer things from their own, they can just pass on the offer or the message to others, then in that case, Europeans can be very, um, very important and have a very important role. But at the end of the day, I think this comes down to President Trump willing to make concessions to open that door for negotiation or mediation with the Iranians, because the Iranians are saying, so far, we have abided by our commitments, and you impose sanctions on us for no reason. So there needs to be some easing of the pressure from the US side. And uh, Europeans can try to push for that. But the ultimate decision is made here in Washington. And the good uh, news is that President Trump actually does want a deal with Iranians. He seems to be very eager to have the negotiations and to basically use the diplomatic tool. And he is a non-interventionist and he doesn't want a war in the Middle East. His base doesn't want a war. The American public doesn't want a war. Apparently, Europeans don't want another war with Iran, which would be even more disastrous than the Iraq war. So all of those are good news for diplomacy. But the problem is that the strategy that President Trump is using to try to get to those negotiations are the wrong strategy. It's only been pressure and he needs to start easing that. And the Europeans can definitely play an important role in convincing him that that's the path that he needs to take. And also in trying to bring the two sides, uh, maybe be behind closed doors to begin with or in through secret negotiations or back channels, but try to de-escalate the situation. And definitely the UK role recently hasn't been very helpful in that regard. Well, with the new um, the European elections and the new EU mandate coming in, it seems like there might be an opportunity with the new commission president and whoever she ends up um, having as her commissioners to sort of be able to play a larger role in that. And who knows what Brexit is going to, whether Brexit is going to happen or not. But do you think that the new mandate of the EU has that opportunity? I think it could be the European Union can play an important role together with the European powers. I mean, European powers, because it's a, it's a collective, definitely. Um, but the EU can definitely be one of the main players on the table, just as they were during the negotiations and the nuclear deal. But there needs to be some opening or some new um, off-ramp, basically, out of this this increasing tension because we uh, there there's been ups and downs. But every week or every couple of weeks, we see a new um, 
event happening in the Persian Gulf area. It's a very volatile region. There's so many players involved, and it's not just Iran and the U.S., although I think both sides have been very careful and calculated in the steps that they took, um, both the Americans and the Iranians, because none of the two sides want an actual big escalation or military involvement. So it's a very volatile region, and it's not a laboratory situation where everything can be 100% controlled, even though both sides are interested in being calculated and controlled, the Iranians and the Americans. There's also other players involved in the region, and there's a possibility of accidents or things getting out of hand and then escalating and then spreading to the region, which would become an important security issue for Europe if there is any kind of military breakdown or... Uh, an increasing of tensions. We have seen the refugee crisis. We've seen how all of this is just next door to Europe and can have serious and direct impacts on Europe. Um, so I think as far as the threat and the concern from the Europeans, this is a serious issue and they have their basically important stakeholders uh, in this US and Iran standoff. And um, hopefully the everything can move towards a de-escalation and a diplomatic resolution. Are you hopeful for a U.S.-Iran, the U.S.-Iran standoff, the outcome, and then of sort of the future relationship? I'm hopeful. I've always been hopeful. Um, when the negotiations were happening, nobody could imagine that that would yield any results. It almost sounded like magic, U.S. and Iran coming to the table and making a deal, but they actually did. There was a lot of hope in the country. It's a very young and hopeful population, although that hope has been diminished. But in general, that has been something that we have had in the past at least two decades. And um, there's ups and downs, but I think the Right now, the, as I said, the good situation is that President Trump doesn't want a war. And that's good news. And the Iranians also don't want a war. That's also good news. So both both sides want the same, have the same goal. It's just a matter of taking the right path into that direction. So there's hope, and I have hope. And um, I think also the experience of the Iraq War in Afghanistan and that whole um, fiasco in the region has taught a good lesson to everyone in the Middle East and also outside of the Middle East, everyone involved. And it doesn't seem, you don't find many people on the world stage these days to say that they want a repeat of Iraq or of Afghanistan. So that's good. It's in our recent memory. And um, yeah, it's just a matter of both sides trying to use more diplomatic means and also mediators to step up their activity to try to come to uh, de-escalation of the tension. So when it comes to um, media coverage of the whole situation, what do you feel is being left out, if anything? Um, or do you think that there is um, a sort of rational, well thought out explanation of what's going on in the media on both sides? Well, I think there's a lot of bias in the media on both sides. When you see the coverage of the Iranian media inside Iran, of course, there's an anti-American bias. And then when you see coverage of U.S. media or Western media or in general world media, at least English media across the world that I follow, there's definitely a bias or a lack of the nuance of what's happening inside Iran. And uh, that's unfortunate. Part of it is, uh, of course, 
the fault of the Iranian government for not giving enough access and freedom to journalists to travel to the country, to work from the country. It's very hard to get permission as a foreign journalist to work inside Iran. There are very few foreign journalists who have the permission. It's difficult to travel across the country. And I meet many American journalists who are genuinely interested to travel to Iran, to talk to real people and to understand these nuances, but they don't get the chance to do it. Uh, there's also a lot of mistrust um, from both sides. So I think this lack of understanding part of it is because of the lack of access, but there's also a political bias, especially here in the US, but also in Europe, um, the media, although they want to be professional and unbiased, but they still see a lot of this political fight from the lens of their own respective governments and not as an as a complete outsider. Um, so that definitely impacts the coverage both politically and also as far as what people feel and think on the ground because of that lack of access um, combined. But in general, I think, again, going back to the Iraq war um, experience, uh, the U.S. media or Western media in general, but specifically U.S. media has that experience in its recent memory, the misrepresentation of intelligence by U.S. officials, by the U.S. government, and how the media was played basically or played into that whole preparation of the population for an invasion. And I feel like there's a lot of um, understanding and uh, and basically carefulness for for the me in, inside the uh, American media to not let that be repeated. Although we see some of that happening again, taking whatever the U.S. government is giving them at face value or trusting U.S. intelligence conclusions and things like that. But in general, I feel like that experience has had a good impact and an understanding and many journalists and media organizations are trying to prevent that from happening again and be more skeptical of what their own government is feeding them basically that's all we can ask for <laughs> at the end of the day it's hard to remove bias entirely um exactly. but i think um i think so many lessons can be learned by how we've handled a, a lot of recent things okay then i feel like we've all we've done is scratch the surface is there anything that you feel sort of needs to be talked about that's not being talked about in this discussion? Um, I think going back to the media coverage and the access and the nuances in the country, I think a lot of the stories that only scratch the surface and are very sensational um, tend to present the standoff or the U.S.-Iran tension only as a religious or fundamentalist problem versus a secular democracy, which is not the case. A lot of this, um, there's actually a very good piece um, in, uh, in Al on the Al Jazeera website by an Iranian academic who explained how anti-imperialism has very deep roots in the Iranian political system. And a lot of this, starting from the revolution or even the time before that, doesn't, has nothing to do with the uh, with the religion or with the Islamic Republic per se. Um, it's it's basically this uh, longing for independence, this longing for a population which wasn't which was never a colony but was very much influenced by the West, by the UK, by the US up until the revolution. And there's all that 
historical memory among the population of going back into uh, the 1950s, the famous coup d'etat in Iran, which was staged and planned by um, the CIA and MI6, and that recent memory of Iranians of all political factions that something like that can always happen again. It was a democratically elected secular prime minister in Iran who nationalized oil, the main resource of the country, to, which was basically in control of the British. He nationalized it, and then the British and the, U and the U.S. decided to stage a coup and topple him and bring back the monarch who turned out to be a dictator for the next couple of decades. So all of that is the underlying political tension between Iran and the U.S. It's not just a bunch of religious fanatics um, who climbed the U.S. embassy and took the diplomats hostage. It's a, it's a historic standoff. A lot of it has to do with independence, with freedom, which is virtues for, for a democratic and, and, and more liberal Iran um, that is shared in different But of course, religion and tradition and all that also play a role among, among many of the political class. But I think there's a lack of understanding for that nuance, that it's not just your their religion against our freedom. No, that's not that's not it. In fact, a lot of it is actually the exact opposite. That's great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Um, I like to end all our podcasts by asking a more personal question, and it is um, who inspires you or who has inspired you? Oh, wow. In my life? Wow. So many people have inspired me and continue to inspire me. I would say in a very current moment, considering all of this political tension, East versus West, women's issues, education, Muslims, religion, everything I talked about, I think one important figure right now is Malala Yousafzai, um, because she is a champion of girls and women. She's a champion of education, but she's also very much rooted in her Eastern and his Muslim um, background. So that's why she can be seen as an actual figure um, that's not a westernized, liberalized, secular, different, that doesn't look like us. She, can, she is seen as the girl next door by a lot of people in the region, in Muslim communities who, you know, want the same virtues and the same principles and the same um, just simple necessities like education and, and, and understanding and learning, but um, has to deal with fanatics, her, her local fanatics, um, and also fanatics uh, on the other side of the world, like the um, Quebec minister who told her if she wants to teach in Quebec, she has to remove her headscarf. So I think she occupies right now a very interesting space that can be the um, the understanding and the dialogue and the bridge that we need between West and East and people with similar um, virtues and similar principles. You pick someone I admire very much for those same reasons as well. Um, all right. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Friends of Europe's Leading Views podcast. Tell us what you think. 
Leave a comment, a like, or a rating, and have a lovely day.